0: Demir's Ambulances is one of the largest, most trusted ambulance design and manufacturers in the world, with a vision to build safe, reliable, and efficient emergency vehicles to assist paramedics in saving lives. Demir's manufactures Type 1, 2, and 3 emergency medical and fire ambulances that set the bar for quality, innovation, attention to detail, and rigorous testing. To find the Demir's Ambulance Dealer in your region, visit www.demers-ambulances.com. Your partner on the road, every day, on every call.
1: Is your fire department prepared to face challenges like the turbulent economy, recruiting and retention, and funding? Level up and get the training and strategies you need on the issues that matter most at Wave 2023. Featuring ESO Training Academy on April 11th through the 14th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. ESO, a leading provider of fire RMS, and EPCR software, brings together national industry leaders, quality training, and experienced fire and EMS professionals for a unique conference experience that will inspire you to drive change within your organization and prepare for 2023's challenges. For a limited time, our listeners can use the discount code FIRETRUCK to save $100 on a full four-day conference pass. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from some of the nation's top experts in emergency services. Visit ESOWAVE.com to register today. That's E-S-O-W-A-V-E dot See you in Austin on April 11th through the 14th,
0: 2023. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tencata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, empowered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit Tenkatafabrics.com/ slash Flex 7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tankata Protective Fabrics.
2: Well, good evening and welcome to another edition of Fire Training. I'm your host, Douglas Klein, and tonight we're going to talk about live fire training and NFPA 1403. This was a request that I got from a couple of the listeners uh, that uh, follow fire and training. I certainly appreciate them asking and requesting things. Uh, As we kick off tonight's show, one of the things I want to make sure that we do say is that uh, fire and training is dedicated to the men and women that are out in the street uh, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, answering the calls, answering the alarms. and and doing what we do, run to people's sides on the worst days of their life. And our desire is to make sure that we're providing the right and correct information, some good information for training, trying to provide the best uh, chance for our folks to be safe and to gain knowledge because our goal is for everyone to go home. And again, like I said, tonight's show is uh, at a request of several of the listeners that reached out to me and, and wanted me to talk about 1403 and Live fire training and how that affects organizations and what an organizations should be doing. So we're going to dive into tonight's program and talk about that. First thing I'm going to do is kick it off by saying, how do we get to where we're at today with live fire training? And it's it's really because of a lot of the uh, things that have happened in our past, and we can talk about several types of live fire training incidents that resulted in line-of-duty deaths. Uh, Starting uh, back in 1982 when we had the Boulder, Colorado incident where an acquired structure was used, it was intended as a search-and-rescue drill, it was only going to be smoke. All this was occurring prior to NFP 1403 being written. It resulted in two firefighter line-of-duty deaths. Fast forward a few years we get to Delaware in two thousand. Uh, we look at Lairdsville, New York in two thousand one, Osceola County, Florida in two thousand one Baltimore, Maryland uh, in two thousand and seven Pennsylvania State Fire Training Academy in two thousand five uh, North Carolina had uh, an incident in two thousand and eight so So part of what we know is that there is a history factor that goes with line of duty deaths that are associated uh, to live fire training. And it goes a little farther than that, is that in the case studies, what we're finding out or what we're seeing, especially uh, in some of the early years, and Boulder, Colorado was a prime example of this, was the instructors had little experience conducting this type of training or a drill. Uh, combustible, they had combustible wall panels and ceilings and tiles that were in there, the types of fuels used to create smoke were really inappropriate. Uh, we know for smoke drills today that it's possible just to use theatrical smoke and even uh, the, the shields that go on on the SCBA mask that create that same style of environment. Uh, and in a lot, a lot of cases, multiple fires were used that extended out to the structure and, and created entrapment specifically inside the, the structures and, and the fire. Uh, growth was not predictable based on some of the fuels that were in there. Uh, no water supply was truly established or not enough water supply was established. Uh, backup lines and interior hose lines were either inadequate or non-existent. There were not safety officers on site. There was no EMS on site. There was no written emergency plan or actually no training plan that was truly written for that as to what was going to take place, how it was going to take place, what you needed for emergency procedures. There was no real briefing of students and um, there was no real walkthrough of the structure or familiarization with the structure. And again, one of the things that happens is uh, unexpected. Uh, rapid-fire growth and spread. So these are some of the things that come out of those case studies. Uh, So let's dive into a couple of the reference points that I want to make, and we'll talk about as we go through the show, about critical factors. The instructor experience, if you reference in 1403, that's in Chapter 4.7.1 and 4.7.2, combustible finishes, is in Chapter 5. Uh, the fuels is also listed in Chapter 4. Multiple fire sets in Chapter 5. Water supply in Chapter 4 and 5. Backup lines in Chapter 4. Attack lines in Chapter 4. The safety officer in Chapter 4. EMS, emergency plan. All that is is covered. So, you know, the biggest thing when we, we get down to this, we look at the history that goes on and associated to not only live fire but but training itself one of the things that really scares me to look back and look at the data and and of course we're being data driven here and going from 2001 to 2014 approximately 11 percent of firefighter line of duty deaths were training related from 2001 to 2015 81 training fatalities were investigated by NOSH. Uh, The United States Administration, the USFA in 2003, the report, Trends and Hazards in Firefighter Training, emphasizes the need for realistic fire training because of the decrease in the number of structure fires. So I want to relate in the statistics that we used, and we go to 2001 through 2014, in 2001 through 2015, but we relate to something that's talking about realistic training that's put out in 2003. Historically, the North American Fire Services have often been very enthusiastic about uh, training. However, we've not been very enthusiastic about embracing new standards and new laws. And that is one of the pieces that when you talk to folks, still today, uh, we have people that are conducting live fire training exercises that really have no concept, if if any knowledge at all, about 1403, which is the live fire training standard, nor are they really following the standard to the degree that they should be, uh, whether it's in... In fixed facilities or whether it's in acquired structures, it's kind of one of those that doesn't doesn't really matter. Now, in saying that, if they don't have knowledge or they're choosing to ignore what they do know and doing something different, that's where that resistance comes in. And we know that uh, that acceptance has been varied with 1403, and that's, Geographically, we know that. So here's some of the things that I know that has, has, has changed and has really pushed through with our uh, non-enthusiastic concepts about embracing standards. Uh, compressed air SCBA was introduced in 1945, but common acceptance did not come until the late 70s. When I started in 1979, uh, it was beginning at that point to really take hold in the area that I was at and, you know, take off and was really being taught in firefighter programs. I can tell you that in 1979, when I got in, I was issued a sponge. And some of the concepts were, don't pull those SCBA things out that are in those boxes because we got to fill them back up. Uh, a lot of times the sponge wasn't even used, much less the SCBA, and people were just smoke eaters. Um, we also know that uh, for years we rode in, in fire apparatus or on the tailboards when things were not fully enclosed and,
0: and had riding
2: positions. There weren't seat belts. Uh, 1403 has, you know, not been any different from those things that have not been embraced. 1403 was originally released in 1986. Now, there have been revisions on uh the live fire training standard. Today, the standard on live fire tra- training evolutions uh began being revised. We know in 2002 it was revised, 2007, 2012, and now most recently uh, the addition we're working off of currently is 2018. So the standards that we look at within FPA are voluntary. Uh, lack of power, lack power of law unless adopted by a governing entity. Well, here's the thing that we're beginning to see and that we have found is that uh, we have court cases that now become case law that reference 1403 and live fire training standards. Lairdsville, New York is one of those uh, case laws that you could look at. Uh, now, some states have adopted NFPA 1403 as it's written. Other states uh, have adopted it and up until recently uh, have have had addendums or different components that were associated to it and took exceptions. Uh, for years, North Carolina used uh, combustible fuels, um, aka diesel fuel or number two fuel, uh, in application to get the fire going. That was one of the uh, pieces that they utilized there uh, since then, and since the time you know that that was there in the revisions uh, it's a it's a straight fourteen o three style standard. Uh, So what happens is some states, when they adopt these different requirements, uh, they adopt things for instructor qualifications, governing agencies, deciding exactly what permits that you have to have, and environmental concerns, those type of things exist. So up until 1986, there was no national standard on live fire training. And in 1982, we know that Boulder, Colorado took place. Two firefighters died in that that training exercise. that was supposed to be a smoke training drill. Um, one of the things that occurred from there was, you know, the amount of attention that that incident garnered, you know, that was, you know, professional and public attention that we were getting. So... How much has been paid through the creation of NFPA 1403 with the reaching and encompassing impact on the safety of firefighters that exists throughout North America. But after the standard was published, injuries, fatalities, and unnecessary damage to equipment and facilities continues, and it still continues today. It continued, you know, after the standard came in, still continues today because of our lack of attention to following a standard that was put into place, which is known as best practices. Now, part of what we know is failure to follow those in best practices, especially in OSHA states, uh, 1403 has been referenced. And they can reference that by going back to providing a safe work environment under the general duty clause. Uh, So part of what we need to do is make sure that we are following the 1403 standard, but we also, and let me say that again, we must also make sure that our instructors and our folks that are running these type of training exercises are very, very versed in the knowledge of what 1403 really says. So that, that's our whole goal tonight is to kind of go through this and get you to understand what 1403 says. And we'll, we'll talk specifically about uh, fixed facilities, and then we'll talk some about acquired structures. A lot of live fire training in, in the environments today, uh, especially in recruit academies, do take place in fixed facilities or, or burn buildings so we we need to really look at this from from a perspective of safety but also from a, a standard that we should be following and legal considerations that we must take in in to the forefront of our thought process so safety should be the first and foremost concern of everyone that's one of the 16 life safety initiatives is about changing the culture and 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 being able to relate to doing things safely and and being able to you know point those things out or follow those type of standards that's the whole concept behind that initiatives and the 16 life safety initiatives the instructor controls the type of structure being used the amount of fuel being used and the evolutions to be performed now part of what we're going to talk about is every time you do an evolution there needs to be a plan for that specific evolution you know, in fixed facilities, this is probably easier to do than in acquired structures. It takes a little more effort going into the acquired structures than it does fixed facilities. Typically, when you're doing evolutions in that particular room, there's only one or two directions that you could come. It's going to be pretty much some of the same things, and that plan can be used over and over again, and we'll talk more about the 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 burn plans and things that you need to have in place. Um, The authority having jurisdiction, which is your organization, typically it falls back to the fire chief or a board of directors type of person or a commissioner or somebody of that nature. They're responsible for enforcing and following this standard. So in NFPA, one of the things that I will point out is it does not cover ground cover or wildland fires or suppression of the fire set for training fire calls, or origin, and investigation. So 1403 doesn't hit basically our wildland fires or doing training on fire calls or in, in investigations. It, it doesn't really address that. It's more for live fire training for, for firefighters. So there's a lot of controversy. Uh, with the adoption and of the compliance of the standard. Part of what it is, it it really makes you look and follow to a T what you're supposed to be doing. And a lot of people don't like to be backed into that corner or be that specific. They like, you know, to kind of be wobbling back and forth or they like to shoot from the hip. Well, I can promise you that in the case studies that we looked at, when somebody deviated from plans or the original process that was going on, that's when something went wrong in all of our case studies that we mentioned. Uh, I have some, you know, pretty good knowledge about these case studies. One of the case studies, and I won't point out which one of it, one of the ones it was, but I was involved in part of that investigation, and uh, some of the things that occurred, um, you know, is things that we deviated from the 1403 policy and was not in the original plan for what was supposed to happen in that training exercise. So, again, that, that's what we would call in, in the world of the fire scenes freelancing. So uh, there, there's so much criticism that originates from the limits placed on the training that they quote-unquote say affects the realism of scenarios. Well, I'm going to be real honest. After being in the fire service as long as I have and working in fixed facilities as much as I've worked in those fixed facilities over the years and actually going to fires on a regular basis, there is no way that we can create an environment in a burn building that has any complete realism to some of the fire scenarios. Now we can create some things, but we can't create all of them. And most of the time what happens if you try to create the intensity of some of these fires is that we just get people hurt, we damage equipment, we damage the facility. And in in the long run, what are we really accomplishing? Uh, Part of what live fire training was designed for was to create a safe environment to create more realistic-style training uh, with live fire, not to injure people, not to try to see how hot we can make it, not to see, you know, uh, how much heat you can take, you you know, to make our helmets melt and get all dark and, you know, to kind of create that badge of courage. That's not what that was designed for. That's not what the intent of live fire training was originally designed to do. Now, unfortunately today, that mentality still exists, and we still see that, and there's articles that come out all the time, there's, there's injuries that uh, are reviewed, uh, there are a lot of duty deaths that occur. So, NFPA standards are truly a consensus standard that will be used to judge the actions of those who are conducting live fire training. So in some states, they require that instructors be trained and certified as a live fire instructor. And, again, some of your, your state training agencies do this. Uh, one of the things that we found across the United States is that those states are not abundant. They're, they're few and far between that require that. Uh, other states say that they only are, are going to rely on the instructors to be knowledgeable of the standard and follow the guidelines. Uh, one of the programs that was put together <clears throat> by the International Society of Fire Service Instructors uh, was a live fire credentialing process for instructors. Uh, they do have two credentials. One's for a fixed facility. One is for an acquired structure. So when we're thinking about that... Um that, that's an option. If, if you as the authority having jurisdiction, you as a training officer are, are looking at, hey, how do we enhance what we're doing? How do we get our people educated? That is one program that uh, you can send your people to or actually host a program and, you know, provide your instructors and your folks that are conducting live fire training exercise with the appropriate instructor training. Thus, enhancing their true knowledge of 1403 and and what the standard was truly designed to do. So, let's let's take a look at what the standard really is. 1403, uh, you know, the the big thing is it's written just like every other FPA standard, and uh, it's written in chapters. The first one's the administration. The second chapter is the reference to all the publication materials. The third one is definitions, and definitions are important when we really get down to what we're talking about for um, instructors. So in the definition section, one of the things that I want to talk about that that are important to come out is uh, flow path. One of the big ones, uh, one of the key terms that they're talking about in there is, is flow path. It's a path composed of at least one intake opening, one exhaust opening and the connecting volume between the openings with the direction of the flow within the path determined by the, the difference in the pressure where heat and smoke in a high pressure area will flow through the openings towards a lower pressure area and cool, dense ambient air and atmosphere you know, flow in to, to help. Now the reason I put flow path in there first is because a lot of times uh, in these buildings, we try to close them completely up. And we try to contain everything within inside the structure. And in the acquired structures, I've actually seen people board all the windows up. So a- again, there is no opportunity for you to actually um, create the necessary flow paths that have a need to exist for being able to control you know, the fire behavior, be able to control the temperature, air current movements, have predictability. Uh, another piece that exists in there talks about the instructors. And uh, in the instructors, there's uh, two types of instructors. This actually relates back to uh, NFPA 1041. So in 1403, The instructor, an individual qualified by the authority having jurisdiction to deliver firefighter training, who has the training and experience to supervise students during a live fire training evolution. Also, it has written in there, uh, who has met the requirements of an instructor one in accordance to NFPA 1041. So if you go to 1041 and you look at uh, what, a, you know, uh, an instructor one must have, it basically requires you to have firefighter two, knowledge, those type of, of, of components. Now, one of the things I want you to note here, we're talking about instructors, is in FPA 1041, the uh, instructor standard, in the last revision, which was in uh, 2019, had an addition of two additional chapters. Chapter 7, a live fire instructor, and Chapter 8, the live fire instructor in charge, or what they call the double the instructor in charge. With uh, Chapter 7, the live fire instructor, it says qualifications for live fire instructor, the candidate must meet the requirements of Firefighter 2, as defined by 1001, being an instructor, uh, fire brigade member, that's 1081, the requirements of the Fire Emergency Services instructor as defined by Chapter 4 in the 1041 standard. That's in Chapter 7. That's one of the first things it says about that. So basically what they're saying is uh, anybody that's teaching or leading a crew or doing you know, any type of real operations in an instructor capacity on a live fire training event has to be uh, an instructor one and somebody that is knowledgeable about live fire training and and what live fire training is is all about, which means that thus you have to have the the knowledge about NFPA 1403 and the associated components that go with that. Now, we'll talk more about what's associated to um, 1403 as far as that goes. Uh, the, the other piece of this is the instructor in charge. Now, one of the things about the instructor in charge that it talks about in uh, 1041, uh, the instructor standard is that you have to be uh, a fire instructor too to be the instructor in charge and that's in chapter eight of that uh it talks about having your knowledge and, and those things about 1403 as well as what it said about a live fire instructor so in 1403 uh, the definitions of instructor in charge you know runs through basically what um is known as an individual qualified as an instructor and is designated by authority having jurisdiction to be in charge of the live fire training evolution. And thus, they have to meet the requirements of 1041 of having instructor too. So now let's let's jump back just a little bit and look at chapter one in the administration. Um, it talks about being adopted, the purpose was the health and safety, you know, preventing thermal insult, you know, cancer prevention, you know, proper training, um, those type of things. In Chapter 2 of 1403, and the reason I gave you some of the definitions first is because it comes back and it kind of touches on some of the pieces that we're going to touch here. The reference standards shall be considered part of the requirements of NFPA 1403. So let's just run through those for just a little bit. Uh, 1001 Firefighter 1. One of the pieces before you do any type of live fire training exercise, uh, it does say what you're supposed to have from the perspective, this is in chapter four, this is the minimum training requirements that follow the NFPA 1001 standard, is that prior to being permitted to participate in a live fire training evolution, the student shall have received training and meet the minimum JPRs, job performance requirements, for Firefighter 1 and NFPA 1001 related to the following subjects. Safety, fire behavior, portable fire extinguishers, personal protective equipment, that's a, that's a big one, ladders, fire hose appliances and streams, overhaul, water supply, ventilation, forcible entry, and building construction. So now I'm gonna come back over to this chapter two and let's show you that 1001 is listed as a uh, part of the requirements, 1041 listed for your instructors, NFPA 1670, 1142 is your water supply, 1401 is documents and records, that goes back to documenting your instructors, what you've done, training evolutions, other requirements, uh, there is a component in 1403 that has to follow with the two-in, two-out policy, which is part of uh, OSHA standards 29 CFR 1910 paragraph G, subsection 3 and 4, about uh, two-in, two-out, but also referencing NFPA 1500 about rapid intervention and the standard of rapid intervention training, which is 1407. Also, hose line evolutions, ability in 1410, PPE and clothing in 1971 and 1975 standards, SCBA and pass alarms in 1981 and 1982 standards, the care and maintenance of PPE and SCBA in 1851 and 1852. Also, in some of your live fire training exercises, especially when we talk about props and other Units There are flammable liquids under NFPA 30, and flammable liquids and gases under NFPA 58 and 59. So with that said, you see there's a lot of other requirements that you have to go to, and you really have to begin looking at it. So basically what I'm going to say in Chapter 4 is that it really defines out what students have for prerequisites. It adds emphasis on modern fire behavior. It defines the requirements and the duties of the safety officer position, 1521, uh, defines the role of of the instructor in charge, defines the instructor requirements of their duties, discusses the instructor's use of props. It defines the requirements and duties of the fire ground or the fire control team, uh, PPE requirements, communications of the plan, demonstrating uh, and including that demonstration into walking through the building, evacuation signals, having what is required for EMS to actually be on the scene, whether it's a fixed facility or an acquired structure. It also requires you to look at water flow and the water flow plans and water supply amounts, uh, what's acceptable for fuel types and what's prohibited, uh, provides guidance on fuel packages and sizes, and then looking at burn plans and sequences, Uh, and it identifies victims, and if you're using a mannequin, how the mannequin has to look. And it identifies very specifically uh, that you cannot have individuals who are live victims in in fire, which we know has been one of the issues uh, that was associated to firefighters and and things that were going on uh, with the Lairdville case. Uh, It prohibits manual ignition with flammable gas fires and the frequency and type of inspections that are required on your facilities, specifically fixed facilities, which goes back to your NFPA 1402 standard. Uh, so, there's a a lot of information that can go there, burn sequence chart is basically how many times you're going to burn in there, the fuel package, uh, how long did the, it has to cool. Now, one of the pieces that uh, I want you to think about that really jumps out to there is how do we monitor those temperatures uh, without being internal to the building. Uh, a lot of people say uh, we're going to use thermal imaging cameras in there that can give you temperature gradients and temperatures. And all one of the things about fixed facilities, and a lot of fixed facilities have these, are um, monitoring systems that have uh, thermal couplers that, that tell you exactly, you know, what the temperatures are at say, a ceiling level, it tells you what the temperature levels are at like, you know, a, a four foot level, and then next to the floor. That way, you're monitoring it. So, those are. Some of the things that really stick out to, to you know, what I think about. So uh, let, let's just break down now that we're we're, we're trying to get ready to burn. Uh, we got a fixed facility. Uh, one of the first things that we're going to have to do is is make sure that uh, you know whatever we're using, uh, we look specifically at. If you're using a gas-fired fixed facility then there's certain things that you have to do and go through. Uh, If you're using a non-gas-fired fixed facility, again, it's about your fuel packages and and what you're putting in there. And again, it's a a burn sequence. So uh, going forward, one of the things that I, I want folks to realize is that the documentation starts way, way early. And in that, part of what we're looking for is Basically having a plan right off the bat, exactly what's going to happen, um, what what assignments uh, students are going to have in a rotation, documenting all the activities that are going on are going to be going on, having plot plans uh, and you know, really laying out positions of where apparatus are going to be, where staging, where rehab, where the lines are going in. Um, making sure that you've got the, the, the right fire flows, those type of things. And, and again, we're, we're looking at records and documentation. Now, since I just threw up a little bit about water supply, I want to jump over there. This is one of the biggest things when you're doing plans is that you need to look at. Uh, 1142 is your water standard. It's a standard on water supplies for suburban and rural firefighting. It was originally intended for pre-planning, not live fire training evolutions, but it is referenced in 1403, and it calculates the minimum water supply that's required or the, to, to have on scene. So this, in a fixed facility, is not near as bad as what it is for an acquired structure. So. Part of what you need to realize is that, that your formula, your minimum water supply formula, is the total volume of the structure, your length times width times height, and you're actually dividing that by your occupancy classification, which can be found in that standard. Then you multiply it by the construction classification, and then your exposure hazard as well as multiplied in there. So the formula is written in there. So what that does is give you your minimum water supply. As I said, for fixed facilities, it's, it's a little different uh, as far as how much water is going to be required versus uh, a, an acquired structure because of the multiplication factors. So uh, just to kind of break that down. 2,000 gallons is the absolute minimum water supply, regardless of any water supply calculation. If you come out under 2,000 gallons, note your minimum requirement is 2,000 gallons right off the bat. You got to have that. And the minimum required for structures with exposures is 3,000 gallons. So again, we, we look at what our fire flow formulas are. We, we run that calculation, and that's the important side that we have to do. Now, in fixed facilities, most of the time in a fixed facility, uh, you're going to be between the 2,000 or 3,000-gallon-per-minute mark, the absolute minimum water supply, regardless of, of what you calculate. So you're going to say, okay, uh, Doug, we're, we're on a Fixed facility, it's on a training site, we've got hydrants. Well, that's great, but you have to have how much water guaranteed. Those hydrants can do what? Those hydrants could potentially fail. So that's one of the the pieces that we want to make sure is that we have exactly the amount of water we need on scene, whether it's drop tanks, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, Tenders, you know, they're on scene, the whole nine yards. So that's, you know, exactly what we want folks to have. So that that's sitting there, and that's what we've got to have. It's on scene. Now, you can have all this extra supply coming in all day long, and, that, and that's good. But we have to have that. So that's your minimum water supply. Now, with the minimum water supply, one of the things about your line is – is that you can have your attack lines? they will come off of one water supply. But you also have to have a secondary water supply or a secondary source for your safety lines or your backup lines. So automatically you're going to have to have two pumping apparatus, um, you know, on site. That way you've got plenty of water. So one of the, the ways that I look at doing this, and it makes it easy, is that, If you have the ability to flow 2,000 gallons of water or on-site capacity of 2,000 gallons of water, and you've got it for both of those systems, you're in good shape. Uh, But remember your hose lines, and that's one of the things I'm talking about here now, is your hose lines for attack and maybe even, you know, the secondary line going in is off of one supply, but your safety line, if something goes wrong, like you lose your water supply or the pump goes down, comes off of a secondary apparatus that <clears throat> you know, is, is pushing uh, the ability of, of water onto another hose line that's your safety line. And we want to make sure that that's exactly what we're capable of doing. So in a pre-burn plan, this is part of what you're doing, should be prepared and utilized. So water supply is part of your burn, pre-burn plan. And basically that pre-burn plan takes into water supply, takes into all the facets of what's going to occur on that training evolution, when they should be occurring, what order they're occurring, the features of the training your ground. Again, I said all assignments, uh, weather, parking, staging, communications, all of that type of information is critical. Now, in that pre-burn plan, part of what your pre-burn plan is going to require is for you to uh, actually walk students through. You need to check their gear. You need to make sure their gear is within the 10-year range, that it's in good condition, your SCBA, uh, that they meet the standards. There's been hydrostatic tests on the SCBA cylinders and, and, you know, that type of record. You also need to make sure that the, the folks that are participating in the training meet what is stated in, you know, the chapter four for the minimum requirements. A lot of times departments require that the fire chief or whoever the ranking officer is, you know, signs that they meet that standard. So why are we so detailed on this? Why are we so focused on making sure that that folks are right? Well, I'll give you a good reason why you have to do the inspection. Is that people will try to do things or slide things by you? Uh, we inspected gear on on one particular burn that I was conducting in in another state from where I'm at now. Uh, all the gear was good. Uh, we're burning an acquired structure. We,
0: you know, had our
2: water supplies and everything taken care of. We we had all of our paperwork in line with, you know, the environmental services. Uh, we've done pre burn plans on the building. We had the evolutions laid out. We had the you know everything in place you know all the instructors we had plenty of instructors to 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 do the evolution that were regular instructors. We had the instructor in charge uh we had rehab that had been set up, and you know people that were there. we had ambulances on the scene. you know we've done all this stuff and and getting ready to burn. One of the things that I noticed from being on, on the position of getting ready to take the crew in is I looked out to the, the crew who was a little bit away, and it was like, something doesn't look right. So when I went down, I, I was checking the crews again. I found that one of the individuals had a hood that was not inspected originally, but had swapped out for probably it being his pocket that had the ears cut out of it. And I'm not making this up. They had cut the ears around where his ears were out of his hood. And, of course, an acquiring mind had to ask, why in the world would you do that? And he was an older uh, gentleman, and he said, that's what's wrong with you young whippersnappers. And I'm thinking, well, first of all, I'm not a young whippersnapper. I'm well into uh, my late 40s, early 50s, and, but uh, it makes no sense to do what you're doing. I mean, that's why we have a protection. And there was uh, a few verbal exchanges and conversation, and basically I let them know that we would not continue any movement of burning the structure or running the evolution until so this individual either replaced her hood or they were pulled from the position, and uh, we replaced the entire team uh, to, to begin the evolution. Now, in that evolution, part of your burn plan is a bunch of checklists. Uh, not to not to mention that uh, uh, you have a floor plan of the facility, a site plan laid out, a safety and a medical plan. So, pretty much you're developing an IEP uh, with everything in place. Uh, you know, filling you you I actually do an IEP when when we you know do acquired structures. So that we cover every base, there's a burn sequence, and and everybody knows, you know what the sequence is going to be. Uh, we've got accountability in place. We've got the rehab, uh, the water supply. We run a burn or a, a facility check inspection to make sure everything's there. We do the walkthrough, and then before we start uh, any burns, we run through what is a go/no go no-go sequence. And that go, no-go sequence is not listed in 1403, but it comes back to the the concept of if you're doing the checklist, you're getting ready to go. Uh, It goes back to pilots. It goes in the FAA. It goes back to NASA procedures. It's it's a starting point that I run and is taught uh, in, in the live fire credentialing program through ISFSI. Uh, about, you know, all the positions and and going through that. And the instructor in charge is the one that initiates the sequence. And the roll call is on all functional positions that are there. And basically you'll call each functional position, you know, from uh, water supply to pump operations to backup pump operations to uh, if you got a safety pumper, you know, you can call it that. Whatever you call your pumpers that are pumping, you, you will run through that. You'll run through, um, you know, are your instructors ready? On um, each crew, there should be an instructor assigned to each crew, uh, which is on a hose line. Uh, you'll you'll run through your ignition team. Um, I like to run a, a safety, overall safety, and then I like to have, if you we're doing an evolution and got somebody inside uh, as a, an extra person that's going in to help watch uh, the instructors and everybody else will be like my internal safety. And then, then the last person that really gives the final go is <clears throat> the, the safety officer once they've heard everybody go through there and say that they are a go. At any point when somebody says no go, and they're not ready to go, and you do a no go or get a no go response. Everything stops, and then you have to run and start over that sequence again. Once, once they indicate that whatever the problem is is corrected or that they are now ready to proceed, uh, so you you run through that again. You know, and that is a big piece to. Um, you know, what we're, we're actually doing for that.
0: Um,
2: uh, another component to this is once we run those evolutions and we come out, uh, you're exchanging people, um, instructors may change out, you're taking people in and out of rehab before you start the next run or the next evolution uh, is running again a go, no-go sequence and to me that helps keep everyone safe now one of the things that i will i will tell folks is that uh, in in doing the live fire training a lot of people like to go in and say don't put the fire out or you know just just knock it down and we're going to change out well part of what happens with that is we're conditioning firefighters to go in and just open the nozzle to get knocked down shut it down Uh, And the things that I recommend to you is that in your your packages or when you're you're doing packages, especially in a fixed facility, uh, that you are killing the fire. It's easy to build those back. It also gives your building time to cool down while you're trying to build those back. And it's it's good to work with to to move things forward. Um, I want to move up to to chapter four from four to chapter five four you know we're talking about live fire training and basically in in looking at what we're doing there it's it's the general uh requirements uh this this is definitely where where all your fixed facility kind of falls in chapter five um falls in with acquired structures And it's any structure that is considered for structural fire training exercise shall be prepared for the training evolution. Now, the buildings have to be rendered safe, and there's a lot into this about rendering buildings safe and and making sure that there's not proof of insurance and making sure that you have, um, you know, the authority to actually do the burn on this. Um, That, you know, once you've prepped the building, you know, there's an asbestos, you know, abatement or the testing to prove that there's not asbestos in the building. Uh, removal of of highly combustible uh, materials that are inside the room and, and rendering it where it's predict- predictable with the fire behavior. Uh, a lot of times, you know, some of the older structures you're going to get may have what we call paneling in them. It's, it's, it's wood. It's extremely volatile and flammable, so part of what happens in those is you're going to have to remove those and go back with with something that's not so combustible. And sheetrock is your best option for that. And then in there, when you're you're setting your your fires, and again, this will go down to chapter seven, non-gas fired uh, structures and fixed facility props. It talks about you know your fuel loadings and and your burn evolutions and sequences. So th- there's a lot that goes to this standard, and I could talk probably for days, And and the biggest thing about it is until you get into the NFPA 1403 standard and you truly begin looking at it and studying the standard and know exactly what the standard says, what the requirements are, uh, it, it's a lot of overwhelming. And then you start referencing out to all these other NFPA standards. So the the thing that I recommend is uh, having some, some type of training class by someone that is extremely knowledgeable in the 1403 standard that is very experienced in doing live fire training evolutions to – you know, truly train your staff or your people if, you know, they're not those folks that are truly trained. Uh, you do have options in, in some states for getting them uh, certified or credentialed. Uh, I mentioned the ICEF, it's an I program for, for credentialing as well. The, the biggest piece to this, I go back to some of the statistics and, and some of the things that we talked about earlier uh, in the show. Is that from two thousand one to two thousand fifteen there were eighty one training related fatalities now that that's quite a bit. The biggest thing that we know is that in the training history um, in in looking at the the line of duty deaths, so let's let's look at eighty one of those, uh, we know that twelve percent of that was live fire. And we're seeing those deaths that have popped up. I gave you example of case studies that you can go look at. you can pull the NI reports on them you can pull up the you know organizational or state reports you know on exactly what happened and review those and I highly recommend that you do that from a case study perspective and learning what went wrong in the training exercises so that you're learning vicariously from those specific events, and you don't let it happen to, to you, your organization, or your people. Um, again, there's so much to cover in this, and to try to do this on a, a show, I'm hitting the extreme highlights. Uh, that was something, you know, that I was asked to do by some of the listeners is to cover this, to share this information out because obviously we've, we're have we seeing and we know people that are not following this standard uh, to the degree and to the com- to the level of uh, attention to detail that we really need to have people doing this, and and again, it, it's very very critical. So, um, one of the things that that I, I would like to point out and and kind of start the closing of the show with is that if you're not knowledgeable in this and you want some more information on 1403 or you're interested in maybe uh, a burn plan sequence or uh, looking at what a, a burn plan may look like or, um, you know, you're, you're curious as to, okay, if we're going to do uh, certain things, what, what would, you know, a, a true uh, plot plan and evolutions look like if we had a facility? And how would we draw some things out for evolutions, and um, what would we consider, you know, the appropriate, you know, process to doing this? Uh, I'd be glad to answer any questions. You can reach out to me by email at uh, dcline11 at sccoast.net, and I'll be glad to try to share some information with you. Uh, for that, uh, I'll be glad to share what policies that we have with our organization and, you know, share, you know, other information that you may actually want um, to, to look at or if you have questions. And, you know, the, the biggest thing is we want folks to be safe. And, you know, on fire training, we talk a lot about providing you with knowledge and information in, in the appropriate training well, tonight we're focusing in on uh, chief officers, company officers, instructors, training chiefs, and you in general as firefighters out there to make sure that you realize that just doing a live fire training exercise is not. Hey, we're going to the burn building and, and light off some stuff, or we got this house and we're going to go over here and we're going to we're going to set it on fire and and, and we're going to burn it. There's a lot more that goes into it, and there's a lot of liability as well that goes into, you know, what the outcomes could be. And, and we know that there have been case law that has been set on this from several of the, the incidents that have occurred. And uh, our, our goal was not to be there, but to, to be able to facilitate good training and make it beneficial to the learning of the students, and the enhancing of their skills uh, as we, you know, go about uh, preparing them for the jobs that they're going to be responding to. And again, I will tell you, it's very difficult to create real life scenarios in some of these cases, especially fixed facilities, acquired structures, you can do more, however, uh, you also have to take into consideration what you're setting up and doing.
0: Does it really
2: meet the standard and if something goes wrong? you're going to be held liable for it, and we know that. So, again, this is kind of a down-and-dirty look at 1403 uh, and the training that is associated with 1403. I do appreciate the couple of listeners that reached out and requested I do this. Um, It was, you know, to me it's important that if somebody has questions that we try to address that, and this is a great venue to be able to do it. Uh, With FDIC just around the corner, uh, if you're still not registered or if you're still looking for something that you would like to do, I'm doing a pre-con on Tuesday and would love to see you in the resort, uh, Fireground operations and considerations. Um, FDIC 2023, I, I just can't wait to get there and see everybody. It's going to be a great venue. Um, we're going to honor the late, great Bobby Halton on Wednesday evening with a memorial service. Um, There's a lot of activities that are going to be going on, uh, a lot of great training. Uh, If you've never been to FDIC, I encourage you to try to make the trip or to at least begin now thinking about next year making the trip to FDIC International 2024. Um, We we encourage you to do that. Also, I encourage you to get into the uh, studies of NFPA 1403 and uh, Any questions you've got, like I said, feel free to email me. Again, in closing, we want to thank DEMERS, uh, ESO, and Tinkate for uh, the sponsoring of the show tonight. Uh, It's an honor and privilege to to have them as sponsors. I hope this has been beneficial for our listeners to listen to. Uh, Again, fire and training is dedicated to the men and women who are in our streets, working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year, answering the call not only from the station but from their homes, uh, serving their communities, and, and basically we're dedicated to providing you the best information and knowledge we can with the ultimate goal of everyone going home. Again, I'm your host. Thank you for tuning in for another edition of Fire and Training. We'll see you very soon, and we'll also be doing live uh, components from FDIC. Till next time, stay safe, train hard, train often, and be safe.